Today's scripture is from Job 19, verses 23 through 29. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. If you say, how will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. The word of the Lord. Okay. Um, so we are talking about the book of Job. We are halfway through. If you were wondering how long it would take, we're exactly halfway through the book of Job. Um, though it's 40 chapters, it's, it's written in a style of poetry that's a little difficult sometimes to go through. We want to go through narrative. That's the way, you know, gospels, we like to go from point to point. But when Job is almost all in poetry, it's a little tougher sometimes. So one of the commentators I was reading, John Walton, had this, um, tried to say, hey, why don't you take the time to read through and capsulize in a sentence or two what these chapters are saying in your own words, because when we read verse after verse, sometimes I would get stuck reading the book of Job because it just all sounded kind of the same. I'm really miserable, and the, the comforters would say, it's all your fault, and he'd say, but I'm still miserable, and I don't know, it, does, I didn't, it didn't. So I, I took that challenge to do that with his help, and so I'm going to summate 20 chapters of Job in one minute. Well, minute and a half or something. And uh, I'll read slowly, so it'll be two minutes. But um, anyway, but so I want to give you the sort of my take on this bulk section of the, the comforters because there is a good deal of repetition, though we're going to look at some of the high points here in just a minute. So uh, it starts with Eliphaz, the first of the comforters, saying, Job, why don't you take the same advice you've always given to others? The righteous get blessed and the wicked get punished. And since no one's righteous, just go ahead and take your medicine like a man. You know you must deserve this. Job says, maybe I deserve some misery like all people do, but nothing like this. This is excruciating and wrong. I haven't done anything to deserve being treated like this. I'd rather die, but God won't even let that happen. God, will you show me what I've done wrong? Nobody can stand up under such close scrutiny from you. Eliphaz, just admit you're wrong, Job, and confess that sin you're clearly hiding, and God will forgive you and make everything right. Job, you don't know what you're talking about. I haven't done anything that bad. I wish I could get my day in court with God to plead my case, but what chance do I have since he's God and I'm just a man? How dare you suggest God would be unjust? Your children clearly sinned too, or they wouldn't have died like they did. You'll just feel better when you confess. So go ahead. We know that all the righteous people prosper and the wicked people suffer. You're suffering? Ergo, I'll let you fill in the blank, Job. Job, I don't know what to tell you. I can't argue with God and win, but I'm going to tell it like it is. God is not being just. I'm suffering right along with the wicked, so how can that be just? Would someone advocate my case, please, to show that I'm telling the truth or just let me die? 
Bildad, this principle is just a law of nature. It must be true because we know God is just. So just be quiet and agree with me. Job, I know what I've said, and I do think some of what you're saying is true, but it's not true in my case right now. But there's nothing I can do to convince you or God. Zophar, you are just an arrogant peon. Who are you to think the rules don't apply to you, Job? You haven't even begun to get what you deserve as a sinner, Job. Well, your principles sound fine, but you're wrong. You really want to be comforting? Shut up. (laughs) That's 20 chapters of Job. All right. So let me... um, let me tell you what happened to me on Wednesday. I was in Manassas. I was coming back from visiting. By the way, the Lees, Young and Carolyn Lee, had their fifth child and doing great. They're in the hospital. Well, they're out now, but I went to see them on Wednesday. was coming back, and like a magnet, I got sucked into McKay's used books parking lot because there's always a used book. I'm thinking, ah, I bet they have it for inexpensive. So I, I pulled into the parking lot, and right as I pulled in, I usually park in sort of the same spot. Whenever I'm in that part of Manassas, I tend to peruse for about 15 minutes. And so I, I pulled in, but I got a very uh, a, a phone call concerning the purchase of our land. The church is in the process of finalizing the, the, the purchase of the land. And it wasn't bad. It was just I had to pay attention to the details of what was going on with this purchase. And so I pulled into the parking lot, while the person was calling, I said, hold on, I want to talk to you, but I need to park. And so I got on, and then it was about a 15 or 20 minute, like all these details about the purchase of our six acres of land that's, that's being finalized right now. And so I got, walked into McKay's after the call, and my head was spinning with all the details. I looked for the book. They didn't have it. I walked back out, and, and I thought, my car's been stolen. It's not there. So I walk, it's cold, Wednesday's pretty cold, um, and I walk up and down the parking lot. I've been in McKay's dozens and dozens of times, and I, I was like, okay, hold on. No one's going to steal a 2008 Toyota. It's just not, it, that's not the car they're looking for. Hey, I have the keys are right here. I was in there 10 minutes. It, it's not, it can't be reality, all right? But man, if I was a betting person, I would have bet, so I walked up and down, I walked all the way to one of the parking lot because I always park in the same spot. And I, so I call Nancy. I'm like, Nancy, I know, I know my car isn't stolen, but I can't find it. My car is not here. I don't know what to do. She's, do you want me to come get you? I'm like, I don't think so, but I don't know what to do. And she's like, do you want to call the police? And I'm like, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to call the police, and my car is going to be sitting right in front of me. I'm going to look like an idiot. I don't know what to do. And so she said, well, doesn't your car, I haven't owned this car very long, doesn't have one of those alarms? Because, you know, I owned old, old cars. So run around the parking lot pressing the alarm key. Like, I guess that's less idiotic than calling the police and having them find my car. And it's not that big a parking lot. So I'm running around the parking lot pressing the thing, thinking, it's not here. I know it's not here. And then, in a place I never park, I never go to the north side of that parking lot. And I, I can only imagine I was so, by this phone call, I got so discombobulated about, oh my gosh, the land sale is going to happen, that I parked in a spot I never park. I hear the car. Nancy! She's on the phone still. I hear the alarm! It's somewhere in here. I hear it. Like I'm running around the parking lot going, where's the car? And I see it way off, like in the distance over by the Starbucks. I'm like, who moved my car? I never park there. I never park there. 
I share this story with you because this is the second part of the theology of Job that should, borrow, that should bother us because we are so sure we're right and sometimes we're not. And we think in our world that we have it all figured out and we do it the right way and it should all line up and it doesn't. Last week, we looked at how one size theology doesn't fit all, right? We looked at that hospital gown, that little embarrassing thing we have to wear when we do the opening of the back. Just one size for everybody and it doesn't fit anybody. Well, Job's comforters are trying to make a theology fit a situation where it doesn't fit. And here's the problem. Some of what they say is right. Some of what they say is right. They talk about how all people fall short of being good and honest and just like God, and that God is perfect and those are right. But they fit a theology into a situation they had no conception of because they did not know and Job did not know that his situation was not about his sin, though Job was a sinner. It was about a spiritual warfare aspect of what had happened in chapters 1 and 2, where God says to the challenger, hey, have you noticed my servant Job? And the challenger, remember what he says? If, if, he, if things weren't going so well with him, he wouldn't praise you, he wouldn't worship you, he wouldn't love you and have a relationship with you. And God said, okay, we'll test him and see. Now, for mysterious reasons, we can't fathom the depths of God, why he would take away that hedge of protection in his providence, he would do that. But that's the backstory, and the comforters don't know that. And so they make all sorts of presumptions about where Job's car is parked, as it were, and they're wrong. Okay? So as we begin to try to glean some of the lessons from this, we hear, we heard last week from the first of these three comforters who don't really comfort and we hear from the other two throughout the chapters. Basically, I was reading from chapter 8 through about 20 was what I was capsulizing for there, there for you at the beginning. And we hear during this spell from these other two comforters, and they all basically come to the same conclusions. Either all people suffer through the general nature of being sinful, and so, Job, you must you might probably suffering because of that. And there's truth in that. The rain falls, Jesus said, on the good and the bad alike. In other words, some bad things happen to us from being in a fallen world. That is true. But he said there's only two reasons why Job would be suffering because of that. Or, and this is what they really thought, you have been particularly wicked and God is justly disciplining you. And in chapter 11, one of the comforters named Zophar makes this connection. He says that the morally upright, if you're a good person, you're blessed. Remember that sort of karma law that we talked about. If you're a good person, you're blessed. And blessed people know God. The problem is he's drawn this line to say because Job is suffering and because there's bad things happening, he's not blessed, so he's definitely morally corrupt. And then he doesn't know God. See, this, the line back. Blessed, morally upright, you know God. Not blessed, wicked, don't know God. And here is Job, which the Bible says was a righteous man, suffering. Okay, so that kind of gets us back to where we were and capsulizes the last few weeks. So what I want to kind of look at is a, a, a couple of thoughts and verses. Um, 
I'm picking and choosing a little bit because moving through Job chapter by chapter and verse by verse, you're going to get a good deal of repetition. I want to ask this question, though. At the end of the book, I'm going to spoiler alert a little bit. God is going to say to Job, though Job says some things, if you noticed when I capsulized it in there, he says things like, God, you're, you're just unjust. Well, that's not true. God is just. I know it doesn't seem that way sometimes, but he is. So it wasn't that everything Job said was perfect. But at the end of the book, God says, Job, though everything you said wasn't right, you are a just man and you walked with me through this. And God comes out in a different place with Job than he does with the three comforters, who he basically says, you have not done what is right in my eyes. And he rebukes them thoroughly and soundly. Why? Well, I want to offer you this suggestion. I won't say I know 100% why, but I want to say this, is that Job, throughout this time, though he's suffering and though bad things are happening, he maintains an open dialogue and relationship with God through the pain. That sometimes it is tempting when we are going through stuff that we don't understand to distance ourselves from God and talk about the circumstances and situations to other, but remove God from it. We see Job going back and forth and saying to the comforter sometimes, you're wrong, but then he says, God, I don't understand. Would you help me understand? Or, God, you're unjust. I don't get how you can be doing this. And though he accuses God of things that God is not guilty of, God honors the fact that he maintains the fear of the Lord, the awesome respect that must come in relationship with him. The comforters never speak to God. They only speak to Job, and they love to hypothesize about what's happening and why. So my question for us, and just our takeaway for us, is that Job's commended, though he's not spotless in this matter, he's commended for maintaining an open relationship with God through the questions. Are we maintaining open relationship with God? Is our relationship with God real and dynamic so that even when things are tough and we don't get it, we can be commended and in relationship with him throughout, not standing back and saying, well, since I don't understand why you did this, I mean, I just, I just I can't, I can't see how God could do this. God would rather have us say, God, I can't see how you would do this. Do you get the difference? Talk to God through the questions that are hard to answer. The Psalms, the wisdom literature as a whole, Proverbs, Psalms, Song of Solomon, they're full of, of this kind of dialogue. And God would rather have honest gut-level honest dialogue about things you're troubled by than hypothesizing among your friends and in your own heart and mumbling to yourself about how unjust a God he seems to be. God's a big boy, and he can take it, right? And if you're loved by God, you'll be disciplined by him, but that only happens in relationship with him. And I mean the discipline in the best sense of the word, not punishment, but training in righteousness to become a right person, a right thinking and right living person. So that's my first takeaway from this section. Job's stance finally comes down to this choice. I'm going to cut through a lot of chapters of Job because this is the ultimate choice that he has to make and that we have to make. Will I trust God and have faith when circumstances 
are bad in the same way I do when circumstances are good. If you want to capsulize the question of Job, it comes down to that. Because if he's a just God, he's worthy to be trusted when things aren't good. And here's the truth of this, which I is painful sometimes. You may never get the answer you want. You may. I won't say I definitely know you won't. But in this life, you may never get every answer you want for every question you have. That doesn't mean there's not someone in your corner, a God who would redeem and change things. It just means you may not be fulfilled in knowing the whys now. And if we're wise, we'll be okay with that, even if it's troubling. Job says in chapter 13, verse 15, these words, which are hard to read in some ways, challenging to me. I'll jump up to verse 14. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will still argue my ways to his face. There's a measure of trust to be able to say, though God slay me, that is, though I go through really tough times, I will still trust in him. I know that's hard. I know some of y'all are going through stuff that's really tough. But I would encourage you to not assume your car is in the right-hand side of the parking lot when it's in the left-hand side. What do I mean by that? I mean that sometimes... We have such short-term memory, we can't forget that just a few months or a few years ago, you were on top of the world, and God was honoring and blessing in every way, and you heard His voice so clearly, and you felt the joy. And that's the parking lot that you always park in. And today, when you don't hear His voice, and when it seems dark, and you've misplaced that part, don't think that God has abandoned you. Okay? It's silent, I know. It's hard. I know there's pain, physical and otherwise. But God hasn't left. I don't know why. I won't say that I know the reasons that each of us are going through things. Testing, maybe. We're going to look next week at why the New Testament looks at suffering differently than we do. And from Job, why we can, what we can get out of that. But I want to say that our, let's, let's, not, let's have, not have that. I had that short-term memory loss of where I parked my car. We need to back up and have a long-term memory that God has been faithful. Turn with me to Job 10, verse 12. Even in the midst of all his suffering, losing his children, losing his property, losing his health, all within a short period of time, Job is able to back up a little bit and say, Lord, you have granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. Well, not right then it hadn't. If my, I can just tell you something. If all my children were gone, everything I owned had been destroyed, and my health was in the toilet, it would be really hard for me to say right that minute, you know, this is what I'm feeling right now, God. You've granted me life and steadfast love, and I, my, my spirit, I'm doing great. That would be hard, but Job steps back 
because that's where his life was. And spoil, spoiler alert, the Redeemer is going to come and restore to him in this life. Though that's not promised to us, Job is going to get that, but he doesn't know it now. And yet he's able to give us some perspective. Second thing is, again, we want to acknowledge that we have limited vision and limited knowledge in this life. You and I don't know everything and don't see everything. Now, that doesn't make everything right. That doesn't make everything wrong. It, if we can acknowledge our limitations, not God's, we'll do so much better. Again, I go back, going back to my, my parking example is that I, I knew what I knew and I was wrong. And sometimes, I just want to tell you guys, you think you know what you know, and you're wrong. You're no better than I am. I know you think you are. You wouldn't have lost your car, but you will one day when you get older. Some of the young people are thinking, I pity the old person. Believe me, it will happen to you because we are all made of flesh. There's a verse we love to put on our bumper stickers or our mugs or whatever that says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Not if you know that verse, right? I know the plans, plans to prosper you, give you a future and a hope. You know the context that verse is written in, right? The day before 70 years of captivity, the Babylonians are about to overthrow Jerusalem. Jeremiah is about to go off in chains for 70 years and die in captivity. And God says, here's your life first, Jeremiah. I know the plans I have for you. Hold on. I'm in chains, walking away, the Babylonians having captivity. I know the plans I have for you, Jeremiah, plans to prosper you. Then why am I in chains? Because you don't see like I see. Because I have a plan that's bigger than your happiness. And it's going to be to free a nation who is in bondage, not to the Babylonians, but to idolatry. And you will never be free from idolatry until the Babylonians overwhelm you and overcome you because you love other gods and you love your pleasure. And so I know the plans I have for you to give you a future and a hope, but it's for your grandchildren, Jeremiah, not for you to experience. And yet you can experience my life in Babylon. You believe that? Or is it only when you have rose gardens in Jerusalem? Is that the only time you're going to praise God? See, the lessons of Job are big. And they're monstrous for us. In a, in a society, guys where we can't count, there's, there's a lot of things shaking going on, and I don't know what we can count on except the one true and living God. Finally, chapter 19, it's a very prophetic verse. I'll back up a little bit. Job's life gets so bad in verse 17. You think the Bible isn't practical? Job 19, 17 is one of the most practical verses you'll ever read. Job says, my breath is offensive to my wife. <laughs> Brothers, you should, some of, some of y'all should have that as your life verse. <laughs> it got so bad, and that's what it says. My breath is offensive or strange to my wife. I'm a stench even to the children of my own mother. Praise God. Job's life was really, really in the tank. And he's at this point where he's got to say, here I am, Lord, the war in my soul between despair, that is no hope, and hope when things look bad, the war is in my soul. 
Lord, help me remember that you're good. You have been, you will be, and you are good. Help me remember. Help me remember that my vision is limited. And help me remember that there's a Redeemer. Now, Job didn't know Jesus long before Jesus ever came. And yet, he's able to say in this darkest of time, before he begins to have any resolution in this, in verse 25, well, we'll back up again. I like to get a running start. 23, it says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. And really he's talking about his complaints, that his, he, what, he, what he sees that he's suffering and he doesn't know why, if he could, because after he's dead, who will remember? So could you write this down, write it in a book? Ironically, it is written in a book, isn't it? And he didn't even know that. This was orally translated and then it's written down. So he got his wish. Verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Job didn't know who that redeemer was. The word there is goel, means a kinsman redeemer. That term is used heavily through the book of Ruth. It's a term that means there's one who was given the right because he was a kinsman, a close family member, the right to buy back what had been lost. Pivotal in the story of Ruth and also for Job, pivotal. Because he says, I know there is one who can buy back all this that's been eaten away and lost. Job didn't have a name for that Redeemer, but we do. The third thing we remember is that Jesus Christ faced worse than Job. He was abandoned in a way Job couldn't even imagine. On the cross, everything stripped from him. And when he suffered, he did it as the Redeemer. So I don't know what you're going through, what you will go through. I don't know. But I know that Jesus is there. And I know that he makes a difference. Listen to these words first from the book of Hebrews. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Are you afraid to die? I know for even Christians it's hard sometimes. But Jesus Christ came to destroy the fear of death. And he came to destroy the power of death. Surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps us, the offspring of Abraham. Interestingly enough, the patriarch of Ur is Abraham. Job is the patriarch of Uz, a man from the land of Uz. Just one little letter and they both find in Ur and in Uz a Redeemer. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his kinsmen, his brothers, in every respect, so that he be, would become a merciful 
and faithful high priest in the service of God to make offering for the sins of the people. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he's now able to help you when you suffer and are tempted. See? Because you know, if you know your Redeemer lives, it's not automatic, though. You've got to believe and trust in him that he lives and that he's there for you. This morning I was reading, going through a first study in First Peter, and I was reading this morning, and this, this verse struck me, First Peter 2, 23. As we take communion, as we're going to share in the fellowship of the one who's walking alongside us in his suffering, listen to this, First Peter 2, 23. When he suffered, he did not threat, but he entrusted himself to the God who judges justly. Remember the pivotal question of Job? Is God what? Just. And Jesus, who suffered more than anyone else, in his suffering, Peter says, didn't threat God or others, but he trust, entrusted himself, put himself in God's hands. Lord, not what I will, but what you will. To the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross or the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Our kinsman redeemer is going to make your suffering worth something meaningful, not meaningless. We live in a world where it's said pain and sorrow just becomes meaningless. Jesus says he redeems it. He buys it back and makes it worth gold. How does he do it? I don't know. I don't know the mechanism. He's an alchemist beyond all that would turn everything into gold that is pain and sorrow for us. What I can tell you is this, that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper and the Eucharist, I, I know that when everything else is stripped away, the last and only hope we're going to have is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we can never be hopeless because if Job could say long before you came, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last I'll see him face to face. How much more who by your word have learned that the face of God was in the man Jesus Christ that we can know our Redeemer does live because he died and rose again. And Lord, for those of us who have trusted in that, Lord, it doesn't make the suffering easy but we know it's not pointless. So Lord, walk with us and teach us to walk with you that we wouldn't be shallow people, but we would be committed to the one who has committed himself to us. And we know that because on the night you were betrayed, you didn't curse and threaten, but you took bread you gave thanks and you broke it. You gave it to your disciples and you said, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. And then after you ate, you took a cup of wine. When you'd given thanks, you gave it to them and said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink, do this in remembrance of me. 
when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So Lord, in response to Your Word, we would take this sacrament and we would meet You here at the point of our need, confessing that You and You alone paid the price for us to have access to God. So Lord, we receive these as grace-filled gifts for us. It's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen. And living hope, all who know Jesus Christ and have trusted in him are welcome to take this sacrament. The Bible says we encourage you to not have unconfessed sins. So if there's anything going on in your heart or life, don't come to the table without having confessed it. Not just to God. I, I would encourage you to confess it to someone out loud because we break the power of sin when we confess to one another our faults. We're healed. Let's confess and then receive His mercy. You don't have to be perfect to come to this table. Just know you need Jesus. It's our custom to take a wafer, dip it in the wine. The darker wafers are gluten-free. Just come and experience Him. After you've received communion, we'd encourage anyone, any need, there'll be people available over in the corners. Just stop and pray about anything going on. Let's see what the Spirit of God would do in response to that. So if I could have those who are serving the communion this morning come forward.